Well, my name is Derek, and it's great to see you guys this morning. I want to welcome all of you and uh, all of you joining us online. Great to have you. Um, we have been journeying through the Gospel of John, which is one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus Christ. And today, we come to the place in John's Gospel where we actually are going to look at one of my favorite miracles that Jesus does. And what that miracle tells us about the importance of the posture of our hearts toward God. So I just want to jump right in. We got a lot of ground to cover. Um, We're in John chapter four, starting in verse 43. John writes, after the two days, Jesus left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So what's happening here is Jesus has just spent the last couple of days in Samaria. If you've been with us, uh, this was Jesus and the woman at the well. And so um, now he's come to, to Galilee, which John reminds us is Jesus' home country. Now, you've got to understand there is something so ironic here in these first couple of verses we're looking at. Because Jesus has just been in Samaria. Now, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. Tremendous misunderstanding with one another. And so in a place where Jesus should have been absolutely hated, he is loved. Many people in that town came to faith and came to follow Jesus in Samaria. Now he comes to Galilee, which is his own country, but which John is reminding us that he's not honored there. So in a place where he was supposed to be hated, he's loved. And now in a place where he's supposed to be loved, Galilee, his home country, he's hated. I mean, they don't honor him at all. All right, so let's check out verse 45. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Wait, hold on a second. Was that a typo? We just said that they, they don't have any honor for him, and now it says that they welcomed him. What the heck is going on? Well, read on. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Oh. So... What you need to remember is that it didn't matter where you lived as a Jewish person in that region. During the Passover festival, every Jewish person came to Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where you would make your sacrifices and your offerings to God. So the Galileans, but they were all in Jerusalem. And Jesus was there. This is back in John chapter 2. And they are the ones who see Jesus clear the corrupt money changers out of the temple courts. And Jesus, it says in John 2, that he does all these signs and that many people came to believe that he was indeed the Messiah. And so Jerusalem is swept up in this Jesus movement and, and, and everyone starts to begin to be really opinionated and really compelled about who Jesus is. So because of all that, the Galileans, they welcomed Jesus into their own country. But what we'll find out is that this isn't a genuine welcome. The Galileans have an agenda with Jesus. Verse 46. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. This was 15 miles east of Cana. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Now, at this point, Jesus makes a response, and the response is really interesting. 
He says to this man's request, verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, you may be kind of wondering like I was when I read this, what in the world is Jesus saying here? I mean, this sounds really callous. Here's a man whose son is close to death and he's just begged Jesus for a miracle and Jesus makes this comment. What's going on? Well, you have to remember, at this point in Jesus' ministry, everywhere that Jesus went, there was a crowd with him. So it's not just one royal official begging Jesus. It's Jesus most likely teaching a whole crowd of people. And he's in Cana. This is where he did the water into wine miracle, right? I mean, the, the, practically the whole town was probably at that wedding. So you've got to imagine the, the whole town of Cana is probably there listening to whatever Jesus has to say. So massive crowd of people all gathered around. And this royal official, I imagine him like kind of pushing his way through the crowd, you know, to get into the middle, to get to Jesus. And I almost imagine like the official interrupts whatever Jesus is, is in the middle of saying to, to beg him to heal his son. With that in mind, Jesus says, mostly to the crowd, because here's this guy who's just asked for a miracle. Jesus is like, this is a teaching point for, for this hometown crowd. Unless you guys see a sign or a wonder, you'll never believe. See, this town, they weren't interested in a savior. They were only interested in a sign. They just wanted a show from their hometown hero. And what we see as we read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is that there's this disconnect between Jesus and his hometown. And if you've ever wondered, what's the deal with the disconnect? Well, Matthew's gospel sheds some light. He gives us a little bit more detail in chapter 13, starting in verse 54. Matthew says, coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? It's a different Judas from the Judas who betrayed Jesus. Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And Matthew writes in verse 57, and they took offense at him. This original Greek word can also be translated, they stumbled over him. Now, why did they stumble? The reason is, is because they knew Jesus. They knew his mother and his father. They knew his brothers and his sisters. And this familiarity, they just couldn't get past it. It was a stumbling block to them. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the old expression, familiarity breeds contempt. It's this idea, and we've, we've all experienced this, haven't we? Where sometimes it's actually easier to be kind to a stranger than it is to the person closest to us. Somehow, you know, the people that are the closest to us, sometimes we have the hardest time being patient with them, don't we? And giving them the honor and the respect that they deserve. This was the posture of Jesus' hometown. And this is why Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Yes, that's right. In his own home. 
So Jesus' brothers, not only did they not believe that he was the Messiah throughout his whole earthly ministry, they actually poked fun at him. You see different places in the Gospels where, where they were taking shots at this Messiah. I can't imagine what that was like for Jesus to experience that. In spite of all the miracles, in spite of the teachings and the followings and the crowds that were left awestruck, his brothers, they just couldn't believe. They couldn't. I mean, I guess it would take a lot for my own brother to convince me that he was the son of God. So it makes sense in some regard. In fact, it wasn't until after Jesus was crucified and after he appeared to many of his followers, the resurrected Messiah, including appearing to his brother James. That's finally when the light bulb came on for James. It actually took conquering death for his brother to finally believe that he was who he claimed to be. This is the posture of Jesus' hometown toward him. Too familiar They just couldn't believe it. And so as a result, they did not show him honor. There was no reverence. There was no high regard. There was no submitting to the authority of this Jesus. It was looking upon him with skepticism and doubt. After all, isn't this the carpenter's son? And so it's no surprise then in verse 58 that Matthew says in So Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So you you need to understand that this is the context for what Jesus is about to do. And it's the context of what this royal official is walking into when he pushes through that crowd to get to Jesus. And he begs Jesus to heal his son. This is the context for which Jesus then says, unless all you people in this crowd see signs and wonders, you're never going to believe, are you? But you got to love the royal official. He just he just presses on, man. I mean, he's totally unfazed when Jesus kind of makes this indictment on the crowd. Verse 49, we're back in John chapter four. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. You see how desperate the situation is. He persists. Jesus replied, verse 50, go. Your son will live. And it says that the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Now, there's three things that the royal official does here in this interaction with Jesus that I want us to notice because they're so instructive for our faith. Three things. The first one is he begged. Now, you have to understand, this is the royal official of King Herod, who was king over all of Galilee. This man is the most powerful, the most influential man in the entire entire crowd besides Jesus Christ. And what is he doing? What is his posture? He is literally begging. So he begged, verse 47. He persisted, verse 49, right? Undeterred by Jesus' response, he simply asked Jesus again, Jesus, please heal my son. And I cannot overstate for you the power of persistence in our lives. My wife, Becky, says that persistence is my greatest quality. It's also often my most annoying quality. But 
She says it's my greatest quality. And, and I love uh, Calvin Coolidge, uh, our 30th president. Uh, he talked a lot about persistence. And um, he talked about how persistence was more important than talent. It was more important than intellect. It was more important than education. Coolidge believed that persistence was the most important trait that a person could have. So important in your life. But even more important, in your spiritual life. So much so that Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, he tells a parable because he doesn't want us to miss how important it is to be persistent when it comes to God. He tells this parable about an unjust judge and a persistent widow. And the widow keeps crying out to this judge who could care less about her. He could care less about doing justice for her. But Jesus says, because she's so persistent, you guys, she's so persistent that this judge who could give a rip about her says, you know what? I'll give you the justice just because you're so stinking persistent. Jesus says, here's the point of the parable. If this unjust judge would give justice to her and he couldn't even care about her, how much more would your heavenly father who loves you how much more will he grant justice to his loved ones? Never underestimate the power of persistence. The official begged, verse 47. He persisted, verse 49. Finally, he believed, verse 50. It says, after Jesus said, your son will live, the man took Jesus at his word and he departed. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal in that? I mean, Jesus Christ looked him eye to eye and basically guaranteed him that his son was going to live. I mean, that's pretty cool. We would have all, like, would have loved to have that moment with Jesus, wouldn't we? I mean, how much faith did that take? Well, if, if that's kind of where your mind goes, then I don't think you looked closely enough at verse 49. Because in verse 49, he says to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. Sir, come down. What's he saying? He's saying, Jesus, I need you to come 15 miles from Cana back to Capernaum, right? Now, we would have all thought the exact same thing, wouldn't we? I mean, we would have thought, I mean, Jesus has to be physically present to do this miracle, doesn't he? I mean, he's, gotta, he's actually got to go there and lay hands on this official's son. It's a very reasonable thought process. You can't even begin to imagine the amount of faith it took for this official to basically leave Jesus and leave that crowd and walk 15 miles back to Capernaum without the one who had the power to heal his son. The only way he was able to do that was because he took Jesus at his word. Powerful stuff. I want to ask you, how are you with taking Jesus at his word? Maybe you're like me, and there's just something inside of you that when you read a teaching of Jesus or you read something in the Bible, you just, you're naturally inquisitive and, and maybe a little skeptical, and you start to question, and you start to wonder, and you start to doubt, and, and you just kind of poke and prod a little bit. You know, and I, I just want to let you know that, that if you do that, that is so incredibly healthy. 
It, 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 that, that process of questioning and wrestling with God and God's word, it leads us to a deeper understanding and a, ultimately a deeper application. But at some point, as important as the questioning and the wrestling is, at some point, what I've realized in my faith is that there comes a time where we simply have to take Jesus at his word. Even if it doesn't fully make sense, if we don't fully understand it, that's what the official does here. He simply takes Jesus at his word and he goes. Verse 51. While he was still on the way, the official servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, I want to tell you why this is one of my favorite miracles of all the miracles of Jesus. Because you see, this miracle happens in the least likely place to the least likely person. That's why it's so good. The least likely place to the least likely person. First of all, it happens in the least likely place. This is his hometown where he's too familiar. Nobody can wrap their minds around who he is. They're, they're, they're fully skeptical, okay? There's no faith. There's no belief. It's a total unbelieving crowd. And he's, he's called them out on it. I mean, he's already said, man, you, that's all you're looking for. It's not even going to matter. He doesn't want to do a sign or a wonder there because he knows it's, it's still not going to make a difference for them. And on top of that, this is the least likely person. This is the royal official for King Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who stole his brother's wife This is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. This man leads a wicked, evil regime. So think about what this high official for King Herod, think of the orders he had to carry out. Think of the pain and the suffering he'd inflicted. Think of the things he'd seen and the things this man had done. Yet here he is, begging Jesus to heal his son in the least likely place, in a town of complete unbelief, to a man who's done wicked, wicked things and has oppressed the Jewish people. And what does Jesus do? He says, go. Your son will live. Not to mention, he heals him from 15 miles away. I think that's pretty cool. But what an incredible window in to the heart of God. I mean, think about it. If Jesus actually came to this earth to show us who God is, if he took on human flesh as a way to to let us know exactly how God feels about us, and exactly what God's posture is to this world. What an extraordinary,
extraordinary glimpse into God's heart. What this encourages me to remember is that despite my lack of faith, despite my skeptical heart and my skeptical nature, and in spite of whatever I've done in my past that I'm not proud of, the same way that royal official probably has a whole bunch of stuff he didn't want to talk about in that moment as he was crying out to Jesus. There is nothing that the grace of God cannot overcome. And so Jesus says, go. Your son will live. That is a picture of God's heart and God's posture toward us. So with that in mind, I want to ask you, what's your posture towards God? What's your spiritual posture toward God? Do you find yourself struggling like those in Jesus' hometown? Jesus is a little too familiar, taking Jesus a little too for granted, seeing Jesus kind of at the same level as you? Or is your posture more like that of the official? Because here's the deal. You guys don't miss this. If you want to experience the power and the love of God, your posture has to be like that of that royal official. Has to be. As I picture the scene in my mind, I think about him pushing through that crowd, finally getting to Jesus. And as he literally is begging Jesus, I imagine he is on his knees in front of Jesus Christ. And that picture of this high and mighty, powerful royal official on his knees has just, it just gripped me all week. And I don't know how you guys pray, what your prayer posture is, but I'm actually not a guy who prays on his knees. That's just not normally like how I pray. I've never done it that way. But this week, I've just, I've felt compelled to literally get down on my knees. Some of you guys do this already. To get down on my knees before God. And you know what I realized about that is as you get down on your knees to pray, it's a physical reminder of a spiritual reality that even though, yes, we are beloved children of God, unconditionally loved by God through what Jesus Christ has done for us, even though we are made in God's image, even though God loves us and longs for us to come to him with any request, any need, anything, we're reminded in this posture on our knees that we, while we may be loved unconditionally, we're not on the same level as God, right? That God is so much higher than us. His perspective, his will, his ways, his wisdom, and when, when you actually get down on your knees physically, I'm telling you, it, it's, there's a posture shift that happens spiritually. And you come back to your need for God. See, if you're like me, I mean, I'm kind of a control freak, you guys. I, I, I like things to be a certain way. I, I like to, to make sure things are ordered and ready. I'm a planner. And, and sometimes I can forget, man, that, that the, at the end of the day, ultimately, you know, I still have to submit and surrender to God. 
And so it's, it's just a powerful reminder for me. And I just want to challenge you to hit your knees this week when you pray, to physically get on your knees as a spiritual reminder of your reality. So I'm going to ask uh, Mike Lewis. Mike, if you would join me up here. Um, Mike's going to share a little bit of his story. If you guys would uh, just give him a big grace, warm welcome. That'd be awesome. Thanks, man. Appreciate you being here. So, uh, I know it's pretty crazy, man. We still talked about how this is kind of surreal for you. Um, if someone would have told you a few years ago that, uh, that you'd be up on a stage in a church service helping to um, illustrate a sermon point, what would you have told them, man? Uh, absolutely no way. I can still hardly believe I'm up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're glad that you are. Um, so, so by that, I, I guess what you're saying is that before coming to Grace a few months ago, you weren't much of a church-going guy, were you? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, only been to church a handful of times in my life. Really guilted into it probably by my mother-in-law. It's always the mother-in-law, man, you know? Uh, always the mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope she's not here this morning. Nope, nope. Okay, <laughs> excellent, excellent. So was it your mother-in-law that, um, that, that brought you to Grace then, or how did you come to, to, to be at Grace? No, so when uh, my wife and I moved up here last year, uh, part of the contract when we got married was I had to have faith and be open to it, and so uh, she really drove it and found Grace just by Googling it. Okay, wait, back up a second. You said a contract before you got married. You yeah, guys, prenup, you guys she made me pay sign. attention to this. this might, was this like a prenup thing? Or? <laughs> no, just the marriage license, though. <laughs> so so your, your wife was like, listen, buddy, you're pretty cool, but... Yep, I mean, you're handsome, but not that handsome. <laughs> <laughs> so, but seriously, so you kind of were in a posture where you weren't necessarily open to faith or wasn't a big part of your rhythm, and, and she was like, buddy... You want, you want a piece of me, you better, you know, you better make this happen. Yep, she, uh, that's pretty much how it was. Grew up my life, never talked about religion, um, met her, and, and I was open to it. And the last 10 years, she's really transformed me and got me on the right path. But it wasn't with me turning toward God at that point. Okay, all right. So, um, so just in these past few months since you've been coming here, um, you've experienced quite the posture shift, right? Um, you said that, you know, your wife was kind of encouraging you for the past 10 years or so, but, but it's been very noticeable and very dramatic just in these last few months at Grace. Take us through how that happened, man. What would that posture shift look like for you? So it really started just a couple months ago uh, when I was listening to some podcasts, uh, found out Grace had a podcast, listened to a sermon from about a year ago, and I'd one of my goals was to now read the Bible after coming to Grace and just read Romans and the podcast. And I didn't really understand Romans, and, but the podcast, when I listened to it, lined everything up for me. And it really opened my eyes to a few things. And within that same day, uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I'm not a, not a freak about them, but listened to the very next one. Uh, and it was about servant leadership. And I was going through a lot of uh, losing my patience with some of my uh, people that work for me uh, at work. And that, that podcast just really reminded me to, you know, how to be a better leader. Uh, and then the very next one was... Uh, Wait, so you, like, how many, are you binge podcasts? I don't I know people binge watch Netflix, but, but you like a binge Grace podcast guy. Grace podcast and chill. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like... <laughs> that's good, that's very good. 
I'll have to talk to your wife about that. Okay. Um, I never knew that, that we put people in the mood that way. But anyway, um, but I, I feel like we're in church, so we can have a confessional moment here. Um, so you got to let everybody know, like, because you've got like a two-hour commute yeah. each day. Yeah, pretty much two-hour commute. Everyone knows how terrible DC traffic is. How many uh, podcasts have you listened to in the past few months? Hundreds. You've gone all the way back to... Uh, so I started back in 2009, and I'm cruising through, I think, 2014 right now. Dude. You guys are pretty good. I have to give it to you. That's, 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 pretty, that's pretty impressive. Um, all right. So, so anyway, you, um, you, you came to, to John chapter 15, right? We're, we're now the same day, third podcast that was speaking to you. Talk, talk to us about that one. Yeah. So John chapter 15, all about the vine. I remember when I read it, I'm, I have, this means nothing to me. And then John uh, and the sermon just completely opened my eyes. And that's when I think the moment, moment finally clicked with me where it was, if you want to be a better husband, want to be a better, better father, better boss, um, just better man, you have to first be a better follower of Jesus. Mm, that's good, man. That's good. I like that. Thank you. Look at this, man. You, want, you just want to do the rest of the sermon? Okay. Um, so what I would love for you to do is just give us a little contrast between, say, your, your posture a year ago toward Jesus versus your posture toward Jesus today. Walk us through that posture shift. So really about a year ago, if asked, I maybe would have said I was a Christian. I probably would have said that. But deep down, don't know if I truly believed in Jesus. Uh, and really, over the last couple months, it my belief has really actually changed mm. to where, you know, it's not a question for me anymore. And uh, I don't know if my wife even knows this sitting right there, uh, but I prayed on my knees by myself for the very first time just two months ago. Uh, one of the most humbling experiences you'll ever have, but it's really grounded me and made me find and understand that there's a peace that I never really knew existed. Wow, man. That is very, very cool. Um, so... So you and I talked about how, so, so like solidifying your belief and believing actually Jesus is actually who he said he was. And then tell us, so what does that look like? Maybe a year ago, if, if there was a, some principle or some teaching of Jesus, how you might have received that or reacted to it versus today when you're, when you're reading something from Jesus or you're reading something in the Bible, what's your posture toward it now? Yeah, so maybe a year ago, I would have thought to myself, oh, yeah, that's a good teaching. Maybe I should do it, but I'm still going to kind of do it my own way. Uh, now it's everything I go through, I say, what, God, do you want me to do? Uh, what do you want me to do, Jesus? What is the right way? You know, show me what you want from me. Mm, that's good, man. That's really cool. Um, and final question. Um, so, so life is just happily ever after, right? I mean, everything's just perfect now that, you know, you've kind of taken the step of faith. And I mean, marriage is just bliss all the time. And, you know, you got a, you got a, a toddler. And so you're just the most patient guy in the world, right? I mean, it's just all good. Absolutely. I'm sure if you ask my, ma- my wife, she'll say the same exact thing, except for yesterday when I was in rare form. And obviously not everything's perfect, right? Uh, I mean, just ask my wife about yesterday. She was having, she was this close to blowing up. But what I think the difference is now is that I can pull myself back from that ledge, kind of realign myself. Uh, and we didn't get into a fight yesterday, even though she had every reason to pick that fight with me. Cause like I said, I was in, I, I was there, 
But we were able to have a really good night, great dinner with the friend that came over and went to bed happy. And it, it's that type of thing where I start to see God really changing and working in my life over the last few months. Does not mean everything's perfect. And a lot of times I even get more frustrated at myself when I see myself acting in a way that I know is not right. Mm. Uh, my wife's always there to point it out to me as well. So if God doesn't show me... Wives are great for that, she definitely they? will. I mean, that's just such a blessing. It's just, yeah... But, but yeah, that's really what it is. It, it helps me, it's helped me find this piece that I just never knew existed. That's awesome, man. Well, I know it took a lot of courage for you to, uh, to be up here. I mean, it's only been a few months that you've even been in church. And so, um, could you guys just join me in thanking Mike for sharing? Thanks, brother. Thanks, Appreciate man. it. So um, what I want us to do to conclude our service is, um, and you guys see the, the music team coming out and, and joining us out here, is um, I've got a song that I'd like for us to really focus in on in our last few moments. And the name of this song is I Surrender. And it's really the opportunity for us to have a little sacred space with God. Now, the word surrender for you might be a really horrifying word. You might hate that word surrender. But I want to tell you the reason that God wants us to surrender, it's because it's actually because of exactly what Mike was just sharing. We all want to be better men, better women, better husbands, better wives, right? We want to be better people. And actually what we find is that when our posture is one of surrender, that starts to happen. It really does. Now, there's a line in the song that repeats. You'll hear it. It's in the chorus, and it builds. And it goes like this. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way in me. And what I want to encourage you to do is to make those words your prayer. And one more thing. So um, what would be so cool, I would envision this moment where... If, if you actually felt like hitting your knees during the song, to just hit your knees. The problem is the seating is too tight and that doesn't work. It, it will be so uncomfortable to try and hit your knees. You might not get back up if you do it. And so, here, but here's, here's a cool way that we can, we can show a, a posture shift if, if, we, if you feel so moved, okay? And I know we're a church, people who don't go to church, and so everybody just, just relax, okay? But you know the international sign of surrender is this, right? It's putting our hands up, saying, God, I surrender. I surrender. And I'm not saying that, that you have to do this, but if during this song, you just get the sense that you want to just really go all in, and you want to have a physical reminder of your spiritual reality that I want to invite you as you feel led, as you feel moved to simply raise your hands as a sign to God to say you know what, I am surrendered to you this is my posture, I can't hit my knees right now, but I'm telling you I am surrendered, I want your will I want your way in my life so, let's all stand let's sing together